Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Thus ends our reading of God's sanctifying word. May all who hear it be devoted to their King, Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be devoted to something? What, what does it look like to be all in? To be truly committed? When one joins the army, they go through what is called basic combat training, also known as boot camp. Here's a description from the U.S. Army's website of what that training is like. It says this, During training, you learn how to work as a member of a team to accomplish a variety of tasks and develop discipline, including proper dress, grooming standards, and learning how to move in unison as a team. You'll also build character, competence, and commitment to the Army during the process. Most importantly, you'll be instilled with the seven core Army values and the Soldier's Creed, the mantra that lives in the heart of every member of the Army, guiding their actions and strengthening their spirits. And what are these seven core values and what is the Soldier's Creed? Well, the seven core Army values are loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And then the soldier, soldier's creed goes as follows. I am an American soldier. I am a warrior and a member of a team. I serve the people of the United States and live the Army values. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. I am disciplined, physically and mentally tough, trained and proficient in my warrior tasks and drills. I always maintain my arms, my equipment, and myself. I am an expert, and I am a professional. I stand ready to deploy, engage, and destroy the enemies of the United States of America in close combat. I am a guardian of freedom and the American way of life. I am an American soldier. What the army is looking for in their new recruits is devotion. And I mean, this is why they harp on even the little details such as proper dress and grooming standards. Because they know what's at stake and that every detail matters. The lives of these soldiers, they can be compromised with even the littlest of slip-ups. And so when these soldiers see actions, they, they, they need to rely on this training if they're going to survive. 
And they will need to rely on on one another as well. Each person is like a a link in the chain. And unless everyone buys in, the the, the chain won't hold. So so if you're going to be a soldier in the U.S. Army, guess what? You need to be devoted. Which brings us to our text for today, where we see a devotion of a different kind. Luke, he, he wants to give us a picture of how this early church functioned and how their devotion demonstrates the marks of what a true church is. But before we jump into that, let's, let's remind ourselves of what led up to this moment. It was just last week when we saw the, the power of the Holy Spirit work through the Apostle Peter, as well as the other disciples, as the church grew from a, a ragtag group of 120 to roughly 3,000 in one day. These disciples... They were able to speak in these different tongues, speak about the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And they caused many from all over the world to hear the gospel in their own languages. And if you recall, it was was Peter who then confronted this crowd with their role in the crucifixion of Jesus. He he, he laid forth the, the overwhelming evidence that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, had now been raised from the dead, and that he, he now reigns in his throne, on his throne upon he, in heaven. He is both their Lord and Messiah. And if you remember, when the crowds heard this, what does Luke say? They were cut to the heart. And so they asked Peter, they asked the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter then pleaded with them to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For that was the only way that they could receive true forgiveness. But not only would they receive forgiveness, but but Christ would pour out his spirit upon them. That promised gift. Well, the Holy Spirit worked mightily that day. And Luke tells us that about 3,000 were added to their number. But what do you do when when you see an influx of 3,000 people? What does it look like when when the church multiplies by a factor of 25 in a single day? Right? What do you do? We're about to find out. For for in our verses today, Luke, he, he gives us a picture of how this early church functioned. He, he is explaining how this, this new identities of these Jews, these Jews who have now bent the knee to their new king, Jesus Christ, how that new identity began to shape them. He is describing to us the effect that the Holy Spirit had on the lives of these newfound believers. Look at, look at our first two verses. Look at verse, verses 42 and 43. It says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It is in this passage that Luke lays out for us what are the essentials for the church. 
If you include baptism, which we talked about last week, then there, there are really five things that the church needs to be devoted to. There is baptism, which happened to the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. There is the apostles' teaching, which we'll get into in just a moment. There is the, the fellowship, which is living as a brother or a sister in Christ. There is the breaking of bread, also known as the Lord's Supper. And lastly, there are the prayers, how we speak to God. And, and, and these are really the marks of, of how a true church functions. In fact, I, I, I would argue that if you are missing any of these five, then, then you don't really have a true church. Again, we, we, we talked about baptism last week, but, but it truly is the beginning of, of membership into the church, is it not? For, for it's one's public declaration that they have repented of their sins, that they have put their trust in their risen King, Jesus Christ. And it's symbolic of Jesus' cleansing presence in their life. Here at New Hope Church, one of the requirements that we have for membership is that a person must be baptized. For this is the biblical model, as baptism is the welcoming in to the family of God. But, the, but there are four other things that are brought to light in our passage today. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So let's take a look at each of these things, beginning with this devotion to the apostles' teaching. Now, who were these apostles, and, and what exactly did they teach? If, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw that there were three qualifications for an apostle, right? First, he needed to be a man, as he was to assume authority over Christ's church. Second, he needed to be one who had been directly taught by Jesus Christ. He, he needed to have been with them from the beginning. And this was vital as, as they were now to be the ones who would pass on the teaching of Jesus, right? And finally, these men needed to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. These men not only needed to have the conviction of, of, of what they were teaching was true, but they needed to be convincing as well. Convincing to those whom they would teach. For they needed to proclaim that this Jesus of Nazareth truly is risen from the dead. And that he is now reigning in heaven above. And so they needed to be an eyewitness. They needed to have seen it. But God didn't just leave them to their own devices when it came to their credibility. For what does Luke say in verse 43? And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You see, just as Jesus was accredited by God by miracles, signs, and wonders, so too these apostles were now given God's uh, signature, his, his sign of approval, by demonstrating the mighty, mighty works through the Holy Spirit. In other words, the, the, the kind of miracles that Jesus performed were now being performed by these apostles. God was now confirming their ministry 
confirming the authority of these men. And so what do we see? When we add this all up, what what do we get? Jesus had chosen his 12 and he had left them in charge. And he had committed to them this role of leadership in his church. And so they were to be the ones who would teach these new believers all that he had commanded them. And that's exactly what these apostles did. They considered that teaching would be their main responsibility. And these new believers, these ones who had just been baptized, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's what Luke tells us. Now, what exactly did the apostles teach? What was their message? Many years ago when I was young, just a, just a brand new believer, I, I used to think to myself, how cool would it be to have sat under the teaching of Jesus, right? Or, or even to have sat under the teaching of Peter or some of the other apostles. But now that I'm older, I, I've come to realize that, that everything I need, God has already provided for me, Right? That I just have to read my New Testament to understand what the apostles taught. To understand what Jesus taught. You see, these men, they, they, they focus their teaching on Jesus Christ. On both who he is and what he did. And they focused on how believers are to respond to this Jesus now that they have saving faith in him. And they focused on the promises of God. The blessings that would come to those who would remain faithful to their new king. Now, I'm sure at the beginning, before any of the the New Testament had been written down, they would have been teaching mainly from the Old Testament, right? Demonstrating how those writings pointed to Jesus Christ. I mean, is this not exactly what we saw Peter doing in his sermon on on the day of Pentecost? He, He was quoting King David from the Psalms, right? Uh, And how those prophetic words pointed directly to this Jesus of Nazareth. But the apostles didn't remain in the Old Testament, for for they would have also been teaching the things that they witnessed during the ministry of Jesus. All the words that he spoke and all the things that he did. And, And they would have received help from the Holy Spirit as they were teaching those things. Look, 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 at, look at the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Look, look at verses 25 and 26. Here we see Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says this. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, as time progressed and as these things got written down, they eventually became the Gospels that we have today. And it was the Holy Spirit who who taught them, who, who gave these men insight into what the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ really meant. And those things were also communicated and eventually passed on through the epistles. And so now today, we still have the apostles' teaching. 
It's called the New Testament. And it is God's guide for His church. For, for it gives to us not only a proper interpretation of the Old Testament, not only the, the meaning of all that Jesus did, but it then directs us into kingdom living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so today, we who are God's church, we are under the authority of this apostolic teaching. And just like those first believers, we too, we need to be devoting ourselves to them, submitting our lives to the truth that God has given to us. But it wasn't just the teachings that they held dear, but also the fellowship. And so we see that this work of the Holy Spirit is not just vertical, but it's horizontal as well. For this new relationship that these believers had in Christ would have an impact on how they interacted with one another. Now, now the Greek word that is used here for fellowship is koinonia. And it, it literally means what is shared in common. It's, it's a camaraderie or a partnership. It, it is to participate with those whom you have much in common with. In essence, it's, it's a family atmosphere where, where brotherly and sisterly love is given by all. So what was it that these people had in common? Well, given the context of the book of Acts, the, the, the people had a shared faith, right? And they were under a shared teaching. And they had a shared Lord in Jesus Christ. And they had been given a shared experience when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And because they had all of this in common, they became devoted to spending as much time as they could with one another. And they looked out for one another. And we'll see this expressed more as we get further into our passage. But for now, just know that, that this devotion that they, that they had to the fellowship, it was more than just Sunday mornings. But there was also the breaking of bread, right? The, the third thing on Luke's list. In other words, they, they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They took communion with one another. And again, this is, this is a crucial part of what it means to be a church. For the Lord's Supper is what Christ has commanded us to do. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so you can see there, there are at least two reasons that we should make it a habit of taking the Lord's Supper. One, Jesus commanded us to do it. But, but two, it is good for us to do it as well. 
For it keeps us grounded in what is most important. That Christ died for our sins. And that through that death, we find our salvation. Think of it this way. In the Lord's Supper, we see the continuation of both our link to Jesus and our link to one another. For when we partake of the bread and the wine, what we are confessing as one body is that Christ died for us. That he died for his church. And this is vital. Because if this is absent from the church, then it's not a true church. And then finally we see that these new believers in Jesus were devoted to the prayers. Just like the Lord's Supper, the prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. And that's because prayer is it's really our way of communicating to God. It's how we express to Him our felt needs and our desires. It's how we communicate our joys and our sufferings, our wonders and our worries. If it is through God's Word that God speaks to us, then it is through our prayers that we speak to God. And what is the Christian faith if it isn't a relational connection? A relational connection between God and His people. And so just as there was this devotion to the apostles' teaching, so there needs to be a devotion to the prayers. And, and notice Luke's use of the definite article as well as the plural form of the word prayer, right? He, he doesn't say that they were devoted to prayer. Rather, they were devoted to the prayers. What this implies is that these were regular prayer practices and even traditional prayer practices. It means that they had set aside particular times when they would gather together for the purpose of prayer. And there were even certain scripted prayers, if you will, that, would, that they would recite together. Prayers such as the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Here at New Hope Church, we too have set aside times where we can come together and pray. For instance, on, on Sunday mornings, before Sunday school, 9.15, there's a group of us that, that meet in one of those back rooms right over there. And the reason we meet is because we pray together. We, we pray for our church and we pray for the upcoming service. And then on Wednesday nights, we have an organized prayer meeting at the Diamonds House. And then Thursday mornings, there's, there's our ladies' prayer meeting over at Dee's house. And then if you're part of any of our small groups or, or Bible studies, then we, we always set aside time in order to pray. Listen, it's great to have a strong personal prayer life. In fact, I encourage it. But those, time, those times alone with God, that they're precious to us, but there's more. Because we were meant to pray together as well. And it's really during these times 
of praying together that you will discover the true needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. What are their worries? What are their joys? What's going on in their life? How can I be praying for them? If, if we're never together, we'll never know. Am I right? L- listen to the advice given in the book of James. Look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Dear friends, God listens when we pray. He he isn't this cold and distant deity who doesn't care for his children. No. His desire is for your well-being and for the well-being of all of his children. And so I want to encourage you, come to one of these groups. Come and pray with us. Let us communicate with God together. And so we see these things. We see these things that the early church was devoted to, right? Baptism, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. But what was the outcome of this devotion? What happened to these folks, to these early believers? Look at, look at our next verse. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. I hope you see that there's two things that Luke's pointing out. The, these believers were together and they had all things in common. Let's talk about the latter first. When when Luke says that they had all things in common, this this could be a lot of things. But one of the things that he was referring to was was that they were committed to a common creed. They had a a shared faith that, that knitted them together. They all believed in this Jesus of Nazareth, that he died for their sins and that he had risen from the dead, and that he had now ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father where he now rules as both Lord and Messiah. I mean, this was the whole reason that they were baptized in his name, because they had a common faith. And it's why they were all devoted to the apostles' teaching, because they had a common faith. And it's why they fellowshiped with one another, because they had a common faith. It's why they broke bread together. Because they had a common faith. And it's why they prayed together. Because they had a common faith. And so all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They were now a family. This wasn't some country club that they were a part of, where they were just in it for the benefits. Rather, as a family, they would sacrifice for one another. And they would have one another's back. Let's see how this played out. Look at, look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, now before you begin thinking that this was, this was some early form of communism or socialism, let, let me assure you that it's not. There was nothing demanded of these people. Rather, these people were motivated out of a love for this newfound family. And so they would use their possessions in order to meet the needs of the common good. Now, now the fact that when these possessions were sold, the money could support many others, what did that mean? It meant that, that some of these newfound believers were probably pretty wealthy. Perhaps they had multiple homes or extra land that they could sell. And then they could use those profits to take care of those who were less fortunate. Those brothers and sisters in Christ that were now their family. We, we, we know from later in the book of Acts that, that there were Greek-speaking Jewish widows who needed to be looked after. This meant that some of the people that were welcomed into this community were, were from the, the Jewish diaspora, right? The Jews who were born outside of Israel, who had returned to Jerusalem with no means of an income and no family to really care for them. And yet the church became their family. And these women were cared for as if their own sons were looking after them. How beautiful is that? Now again, this, this is not socialism. Nobody's forcing anyone to do anything. Rather, these things were done out of a love for one another and out of a love for Jesus Christ. And these actions are proof that the apostles were doing their job, right? For only the teachings of Jesus could motivate such familial kindness. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. <clears throat> While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Dear friends, what, what we see in the actions of these new believers was the mentality of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, the, the, the teachings of Christ changed their hearts. And because they had accepted this new family, because they had been accepted into God's family. They now behaved as God's children. Listen, if Jesus is your king, then you have become my brother or my sister. 
And I will not allow one of my brothers or one of my sisters to suffer if I have the power to prevent it. This should be our mentality today. That we would be the true family of God. That, that, that we would see one another as true brothers and sisters. That we would be a true family. But it's, but it's more than just taking care of one another, isn't it? For a true family spends time together. Look at, look at verse 46. And day, by and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now this phrase, day by day, it doesn't necessarily mean that every believer would gather together in one large group every day as if they were having church every day of the week. I mean, how does that work with 3,000 people, right? But, but what this is talking about is that there were these contact points throughout the week where they could join together again, sometimes in, sometimes in a larger group setting, but most likely more times often in a smaller group setting. Sometimes they'd meet at the temple, and sometimes they would meet in homes and break bread together. Now, when Luke speaks of them attending the temple together, this is probably, probably a reference to their Sunday morning service, right? As well as maybe certain times when community prayers took place at the temple. Or if they just wanted to gather as that larger group for some specific reason. And so they would need space, right? I mean, 3,000 people is a lot of people. And how do you meet corporately? without space. And so the temple was the perfect place for these larger gatherings. Now, now you may be asking yourself, how are they able to meet at the temple? Didn't the Sadducees have control of the temple? Well, I'm glad you asked. You, you see, this, there was this section that King Herod had built called Solomon's Porch. And it was this open colonnade situated on the eastern side of the temple. And it was this area that was specifically used for large public gatherings. And it was open to all. It wasn't controlled by the Sadducees. This would have been the same area that, that Jesus would have taught him when he had come to the temple to stir up trouble, right? And seeing as this newfound church would have been gathering on their new Sabbath on a Sunday rather than a Saturday, my guess is that this space would have been wide open for them. And yet, when they broke bread together, this was more likely done in the privacy of their own homes, in a more intimate setting, where they could be a family together. And so we see these smaller groups that had formed as well. And it was around the table that they grew closer to one another. And in many communities around the world, it is at the table where true fellowship begins. And this is something that I discovered when I, when I was first living in Thailand. 
that, that all the relationships centered around eating. Even the way their meals were structured were, was communal in nature. For, for they would have these, these large platters that they would set out in the middle of the table. And it was from these platters that they would eat. And so they shared a common meal, forcing them to interact with one another, right? And so what food did is it, it brought out a sense of trust and it brought out a sense of openness among the people. We, we are trying to develop that same family atmosphere here at New Hope Church. We're, we're, we're establishing these connection points throughout the week so that we can be meeting daily with one another. That, that's why we've started these different groups on these various days, whether, whether it's a small group or a prayer group or a Bible study. It's points of connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yes, some of these groups do have meals. Our, our, our small groups, we, we have meals. And, and the reason we do that is because we, we believe that we truly are a family. And so we are committed to acting as a family. Listen, if you're only a Sunday attender, I, I get it. Life is busy. And if you have kids, then life is really busy, Right? But, but let's be honest, when, when our life gets so busy that we have little time or perhaps no time for what we claim to be most important to us, then what does that say about our faith? It means that either we, we don't understand the, the calling that God has placed upon us, or that we haven't really bought into what it means to be a part of God's family. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to take some time and consider your current schedule. And then ask yourself, what would it take to be devoted to the things of Christ? What, what type of sacrifice would you need to give to start attending a small group? Or start attending a prayer meeting? Or one of the Bible studies? And then once you have done that, then ask yourself this. Would that sacrifice be worth it? in order to deepen your connection with your church family, in order to deepen your connection with Jesus Christ. And then, once you have answered those questions, then there's one more question that I want to ask you. Have you become a member of New Hope Church or not? And if the answer is no, then ask yourself why. I mean, what membership really is, it is a covenant that we make with one another to, to look out for one another, to keep one another accountable, to love one another. That, that's all church membership is. It's our covenant to live as a family of God. Here's the thing. The, the word that Luke uses to describe this early church is devoted. He, he didn't use the word nonchalant. He didn't say laid back. He says the word devoted. When, when, when a soldier joins the U.S. Army, he better be devoted. Because if he's not, it might cost him his life or the life of his friend. 
The, the same thing goes for the church. The, there, there may not be earthly consequences, although there may be, but there are definitely heavenly consequences. And how devoted we are will determine how God will use New Hope Church. Look, look at the end of our passage. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What, what we see going on here is a healthy church that is devoted to the things they should be devoted to and God blessing them with growth. Now let me be clear about this. God is the one who brings the growth, not us. He is the Lord of the harvest. And so it is he who decides which church he wants to grow. And God grows healthy churches. And I'm not talking about superficial growth that you see in some of these unhealthy churches that comes through worldly means. What I'm talking about is true growth. Where, where people come to a genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. So throughout this whole narrative, we, we have seen how the gospel affects lives of those who, who truly believe, right? What did we just read? Their lives were changed. We, we have seen what regener regenerative hearts look like. And so the questions we must the question we must ask ourselves is this: How has the gospel message affected us? Are we as a church reaching the marks set out in this passage? And on a personal level, how, how, how devoted are you as a believer in Jesus Christ to the things that Christ has called you to? If we truly desire to see New Hope Church have growth, then we need to take a long look in the mirror. We need to be honest about where we are at and whether or not we are devoted to Christ. And that's because church growth happens when the church's priorities are in the right place. When we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the proclamation of the gospel. When we are devoted to the fellowship when we are together and have all things in common, when we are devoted to the breaking of the bread, when, when we remember what our Lord and Savior did for us, and when we are devoted to the prayers, to, to seeking God, knowing that it is only through Him that we can find our strength. And so let us be devoted. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in submission to your Son and to your will. We ask that you would guide us this day by your Holy Spirit, that we might become truly devoted to you. We, we confess that we cannot do this in our own strength, that we need your help. And so we ask that you would help us to see the importance and the things that you have emphasized, the things that are important for your church. 
We pray that you would make new hope a healthy church. And we pray for growth. But not just any growth, but a, but a growth that comes about by your will. May you use us, may you use New Hope Church to lead many, many to your son. May, may we become a catalyst for your kingdom's expansion. We cannot do this on our own. We need your strength. We need your Holy Spirit to move among us and to change us. So we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.